morning. Uh, good to see you all. Let's pray, shall we, as we come to God's word together. Our great God in heaven, Father, Son and Spirit, we praise you that you are a God who is gracious. Uh, we praise you that as you reveal yourself in your son when he came in the flesh, that uh, the testimony says he was full of grace and truth. And so now we come as those in need of your grace. Uh, we come with our, our emptiness waiting for your fullness to be poured out on us. So as we come to the scriptures now, please would you show yourself gracious to us. Would you feed us? Would you provide for us? Would you bring to us your life through your word? And may it all be for your glory. Amen. Uh, we are far too easily pleased. I mentioned that in recent weeks. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote it. He said this. He said, we are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And, and so easily we, 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 we play the part of that child. We get overly occupied, caught up with all kinds of things, with, with I know, politics, haircuts, purchases, plans, tiredness, health, relationships, eating, exercising, learning, working. And, and we get caught up with all these things and we don't stop to say, what is it for? What's the point? What is the point? We're in Matthew's gospel. Uh, Matthew who plots for us this journey from this journey of Jesus from the cradle to the cross. Uh, and, and in this, um, this history, uh, our passage today falls probably about Tuesday of the week leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. A few days before Jesus had entered Jerusalem as the king, he had stormed the temple, and as he did that, he drew criticism from the religious leaders. Uh, he, he told them three stories about the kingdom of heaven, stories to show them that they were outside of that kingdom. Uh, these three stories are then followed by three questions, and we've got the first two in our passage this morning. Uh, these are malicious questions that we're dealing with. Uh, just look to, with me at the end of chapter 21. End of chapter 21 says the chief priests, the Pharisees, they heard Jesus' parables. They knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd. They were afraid of the crowd. That was their problem. So how do they deal with this problem of Jesus' popularity? Well, it seems that they, they try to address it with some questions. Uh, questions aiming to discredit Jesus to the crowds. Uh, once he's discredited, it'll be easier for them to arrest him. So, so the first question comes, it's driven by the Pharisees, aims to discredit Jesus by forcing him into a political corner. Uh, they're asking about the poll tax, paying the poll tax to Caesar. Uh, around AD 6, there was a, rev a revolution because of the poll tax, a, violence rev a violent revolution. Uh, in AD 66, about then, there would be another revolution about this same tax, and that time it would end with the destruction of Jerusalem. This question of the poll tax was a hot potato of the day. Second question comes, it's from the Sadducees, it's about marriage and resurrection, aiming to make Jesus look ridiculous. Uh, once the crowds start laughing at Jesus, they won't mind when he's arrested. Now, a spoiler alert here. Uh, the plan backfires, horribly backfires. What do the crowds think? Look at the end of our passage, verse 33. When the crowds heard this, 
They were astonished at his teaching. It ends up with the crowds more amazed, making it even harder for the religious leaders to get to Jesus. I think, though, there is a theme that unites our passage. And to get to that theme, I think I want us to think about, uh, as they come with these questions, why do they think the questions will work? What's their thinking? Uh, We've seen, haven't we, how Jesus' mission is concerned with the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven has come near because the king has come. But when the religious leaders look at Jesus, they don't see a king, they see a threat. And they are intent on destroying him. That continues, doesn't it? Our passage begins, verse 15. uh, They are laying plans to trap him in his words. The the kingdom of heaven is coming, but they're laying plans to trap him. Uh, The questions that are asked show that the kingdom of heaven is obnoxious to small minds. The kingdom of heaven is obnoxious to little minds. Uh, These questions come from such a a, a narrow, shriveled way of looking at the world that they recoil from the kingdom of heaven and recoil with all the violence that's going to be meted out in a few days on Friday. Uh, Let's see how that works out. Let's explain that a bit more. We have this first example, the question about taxes. Verse 15. The Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. This isn't a very likely pairing. The Herodians support Herod and Herod was a complete kind of, it was morally terrible. He had sold out hook, line and sinker to the Romans. And the Pharisees were kind of the other end of the spectrum. They were the purists. They hated the Roman rule. They were probably quite sympathetic towards the rebellions. But what they say is these groups come together, their words are as slimy as the back of an old toad, aren't they? Look what they say. Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Really? In a couple of days, they are going to condemn this man of integrity to death slimy isn't it but then comes the question tell us then what is your opinion is it right to pay the poll tax to caesar or not to pay the tax is to accept roman rule and the revolutionaries would say if you love god you hate rome unless you're some sellout like herod unless you're some sellout you'd rather take up weapons and spill your blood than pay this tax so if jesus says you should pay the crowd will, will, what the crowd will hear is, it is right that Caesar is our Lord. However, if Jesus said, you shouldn't pay, and maybe that's why the Herodians have been brought along, he makes himself a revolutionary. And he'd get reported to the Romans as a troublemaker. And if the Romans want to arrest Jesus, there is nothing the crowd can do about it. It's a brilliant plan, so they think. And what then is their assumption behind the question? Why are they asking this question? Why do they think this will trap Jesus? See, they ask the question because Roman rule is a problem. And, and as they look at this problem, they see that there are two solutions. There is either capitulation or rebellion. You can either compromise, you can pay the tax, you can honour the pagans. It's probably the easier way if you don't want to get yourself killed. And yet Caesar has called himself God. 
How can they honor a false god? Surely the only, the only real option is to fight for freedom. You know, they see that there are these two options. And the problem is that they are too small-minded. They haven't looked at the depths of the problem. You see, th- these are people with a long history. We read about it in the first part of our Bibles. Their history goes back to when God rescued them as a people out of Egypt, put them into the promised land with God himself as their king. And they would stay in the land as long as they were faithful. But they were not faithful. Generation after generation, they were not faithful. They went after other gods. They worshipped idols. And eventually, they were removed from the land and they lived under pagan overlords. The, The nation was exiled because of their sin. As they look at their history, they will see that being subject to godless nations was divine judgment. Now, if they applied those lessons of history to their situation under the Romans, they would have to conclude that they are under divine judgment. But of course, their diagnosis doesn't go deep enough. And because it doesn't go deep enough, their solutions are superficial. They only have capitulation or rebellion, but neither one gets to the depth of the problem. See, this intrusion of the kingdom of heaven means they must face the problem of sin as their original need. Jesus has just told them three stories, three stories to show them in particular that they are not in the kingdom of heaven because of their sin. But they're not listening. Their only response to this is to plan to kill an innocent man. The coming of the kingdom of heaven means that we too must face sin as our deepest need. And yet we can miss it. We can be too easily pleased and heal the wounds too lightly, which is really no healing at all. Now, how does Jesus answer? Look at verse 18. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius and he asked, whose image is this and whose inscription? Here's a coin, the coin they would have paid. This is a denarius um, with the image of the Caesar at the time. That The words on this say, son of God. Uh, On the other side, the words say, high priest. This was the coin. Jesus says, show me the coin. And then comes the hammer blow. Jesus says, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. What does he mean by that? Let's not mishear him. He is not saying this. He is not saying divide your life into groups. And there are some things in your life that can go to Caesar and other things go to God. He is not saying that. I'll tell you why. Because what are the things of God? All things are of God, aren't they? In the beginning, God created everything. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. All things are God's things, so all things are to him. And so to give to God the things of God, well, it includes the things of Caesar. Caesar has nothing but what has been given to him. His power, his authority, his possessions, they belong to God and they're Caesar's by loan and loan only. So when you give to Caesar his tax, you do it for God's sake. And yet more than that, you need to go deeper They need to ask about themselves, don't they? They must give to God what is God's. Their deepest need is that they haven't. They're made in the image of God. But instead of worshipping him, they've 
deface that image with their sin. And it's the same for all of us. We bear God's image, but we ruin it with sin as we fall short of his glory. And the kingdom of heaven has come, says Jesus. It's breaking into the realm of sin and death. And it's our sin that separates us from that kingdom. And so we need an answer for our sin. And the answer isn't to fight like the revolutionaries. The answer is certainly not to just go with the flow like the Herodians. Jesus' hammer blow, it it invades wrangling about politics and taxes. Give to God what is God's. The same hammer blow invades our busy thoughts and our anxious hearts and our, the things that stress us and the things that distract us. Jesus says to us, give to God what is God's. There's nothing outside of that. We're made by God. We're made for God. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in him. So let's not be too easily pleased. Now, see what happens in this brief exchange. What happens is the Pharisees come with the hot potato of the day, the, this, this hot issue, paying taxes to Caesar, and Jesus answers it, doesn't he? Very directly. You should pay the tax, is what he says. But he doesn't stop there. It's the key bit, isn't it? He, he relativizes the question give to God what is God's. So we can ask ourselves, what are the hot potato topics of our day? Click open the news and you'll see all kinds of things. Violence against women, Black Lives Matter, trade with China, coronavirus, vaccines, lockdown. We can make a list, couldn't we? And the Bible has got a lot to say about all of these things. But once we've got an answer, that is not the end. Let's not stop there. Let's not think small and be too easily pleased. Give to God what is God's. That is, you've got to get everything in its right place. Put everything under God because all things are from him and through him and for him. How did the Pharisees react? Verse 22 says they were amazed, but it's not a good sort of amazement. It says they were amazed, so they left him. They go away from Jesus. They push him away because the kingdom of heaven It's obnoxious to little minds. Example of taxes. The second example follows very quickly. Very, very quickly, the Sadducees come. It's it's the same day. The Sadducees, the, 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 the chief priest families of the times belong to this group called Sadducees. And one of the things we know about them is told here. The Sadducees are those who say there is no resurrection. What does that mean? Well, well, resurrection is not about going to heaven when you die. A resurrection is about your bodies being brought again to life to live on earth forever. Resurrection is always about a great future. It's about a great future when all the wrongs are put right and people live forever on earth in peace and harmony. And the Sadducees say, no, nonsense. They say when you're dead, you're dead. It's the end. There is nothing more. Nothing survives. So they come with their question. Remember, they want to discredit Jesus. They want to make him look silly. So they they start with something Moses taught. Uh, They say, if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise offspring for him. It's um, kind of functioned as a way of providing security for the widow, uh, a way of ensuring that the name of the man who died was preserved within his family. Uh, It's a practice which is only seen really on two occasions in the Old Testament. 
Um, both times it includes the reluctance of the relative to risk their own situation for this. But that's the basis of the, the Sadducees' question. They then tell a story about seven brothers who each in turn marry one woman and then they all die and there's no children. If there's no resurrection, they say, then who will be married to who? Nonsense, isn't it? Resurrection doesn't work. Uh, And as they ask the question, they can't see how Jesus can answer without looking silly. They think they have trapped him. But again, let's think, what are their assumptions behind the question? Uh, They think that this life is the only life. They, They think that marriage is the example that they pull out. It only makes sense in terms of the here and now. Their argument is that it's marriage... And multiple marriage, the possibility for that, which makes a mockery of resurrection. The problem with it is that it is just too small-minded. They haven't really asked, what is marriage for? See, the, the, the question about taxes showed that the coming of the kingdom of heaven means we must face sin as our deepest need. That this question about marriage shows the coming of the kingdom of heaven means we must face that the purpose of marriage is beyond this world. How does Jesus answer them? Verse 29. You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. You're too easily pleased, he's saying. You've settled for a superficial reading of the scripture and you've settled for a small God who cannot do the great thing. Jesus explains, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And Jesus says, resurrection marks the end of marriage. Why? To understand that, we need to go right back to the beginning, right back to, to, the, the, to see the purpose for marriage. You know, right back in the beginning, God created people in his image. Right back in the beginning, God gave people a mission to go and fill the earth. The mission of people was to populate the world, expanding the borders of paradise until the whole earth was filled with God's image bearers. And that was why we read in Genesis that God said to Adam, it is not good for you to be alone. Adam could not populate the world by himself. He needed a corresponding part, a wife. And and you see, marriage was given there in creation, not simply for producing offspring. Strictly speaking, marriage is not needed for that. A marriage was given for producing godly offspring. People who live in glad submission to the rule of the creator so that they might enjoy the blessings of God in the world in fellowship with him and with one another. And that requires more than just copulation. It needs nurture and care and the security which is found in marriage. And God said in the beginning, it's good. It is very good. And yet the key is that there is a telos. There is an end goal. In the beginning, Eden was paradise in potential. In Eden, there was the potential for mankind to reach immortal bliss and for the world to be filled with the glory of God. And yet the potential in creation wasn't realized. It stumbled and fell because sin and death entered the world. People were exiled from Eden and the mission melted into misery. 
That was not the end, though. That was not the end. The end, it didn't end in the beginning. Have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Jesus quotes from Exodus chapter 3. You see, after Eden, after the fall, grace erupted into the darkness of humanity when God called Abraham and promised, I will bless the world through you. The reign of sin and death that came in at the fall will come to an end through your family line, Abraham. God bound himself up with this man. He committed himself to Abraham in a covenant of grace and again to Isaac and again to Jacob. And these men died. And then hundreds of years later, their family line were found to be slaves in Egypt. They were subject to great misery. And that's where Exodus 3 comes. In Exodus 3, God appears to Moses and says, I have heard their cry. I remember the covenant of grace I made with Abraham. I will bring them from the place of death and they will be my people and I will be their God. God would launch this great rescue from Egypt with mighty acts of judgment and redemptive sacrifice. Why? Because God cannot fail to keep his promises. Now that covenant with which God bound himself to Abraham and his descendants is a covenant too strong to be terminated by death. So when the Lord says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, he is reaffirming that he has so identified himself with Abraham that although Abraham died, it was not the end. Affirming that to belong to God is to enter a relationship that will last as long as God does. And with that, the great rescue from Egypt foreshadows the ultimate final rescue the great rescue that Abraham and all of God's people will experience at the resurrection at the resurrection when in more mighty acts of judgment God will do away with sin forever and through redemptive sacrifice God himself will atone for the sins of his people so he can bring them into life beyond death resurrection life in the renewed cosmos God is God and his purposes His purposes in creation will be realized. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The whole creation will be paradise. And marriage continues to aim at that final goal. See, the the Sadducees came with this, what they thought was an unanswerable conundrum. But they just show that they're too easily pleased. That they're they're too small-minded. In reality, because they thought death was the end, they had no answer to the fall. They had no sufficient response to the entrance of sin into the world. They they, they saw that the purpose of marriage was just for today and only for today. It's for here and now. That's all they saw, but that's not what marriage is for. The purpose of marriage in creation anticipates an end. It anticipates when the purpose is achieved when marriage has done its work and is no longer needed. You see, the the Sadducees come with their argument that marriage makes a mockery of resurrection. Jesus' response is that resurrection makes sense of marriage. Uh, We live in times when there isn't much clarity on the purpose of marriage. Uh, It seldom goes beyond the idea that two people are romantically attracted and decide to get married. That's not what marriage is. And what we think about marriage today, what we think about marriage is a litmus test for what we believe about resurrection. 
Now we might even say that if marriage is for this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Maybe that's overstating it a little, but marriage is temporary. Its purpose is to prepare and to point towards something beyond. And when the potential of original paradise becomes consummate perfection, then marriage will have served its purpose. This a glorious vision that the marriage puts out. This glorious vision that all the myriad of micro-marriages one day will be gathered into one macro-marriage. The relationship of God and his people in a covenant of eternal love. That is the kingdom of heaven. I wonder if we find it glorious. I wonder if we do. Now when Jesus says there is no marriage in the resurrection, it might be too much for us to swallow. Now on one hand, some earthly marriages have caused deep pain. Uh, and yet others have been where the deepest joys of earthly life are experienced. It might be too much to swallow to hear that there is no more. But when marriage ends, there will not be less. There will be more. But when marriage reaches its fulfillment, we will have entered into a deeper capacity for love and happiness with one another. Um, more than what we can now imagine. And maybe there's the problem for us. Like children making mud pies in the slums, we're settling for something less because we can't imagine something more. Too easily pleased. The Sadducees wouldn't see beyond what was right in front of them. The kingdom of heaven was no interest to them. It was obnoxious because of their little minds. But what about us? What about you? Are we making mud pies in the slum? Struggling to make that connection between life and the kingdom of heaven? No, maybe we, we, we wrestle with, with, with giving to Caesar what is his, but we, we don't often ask about giving to God what is God's. Maybe we wrestle with the idea of marriage, whether we are married or not. The whole spectra of, of romance and relationships and sex and intimacy and childbearing. The world is loud with these things. Identities are lost and found in these things. But how do we imagine beyond? How do, we, how do we look deeper? How do we not end up resisting the kingdom of heaven because our thinking is too small? Are we too easily pleased? Well, to answer that, as we come to a close, let's focus on the man at the center of all this. Do you notice that when the Sadducees ask Jesus their question, there is a really vicious edge to what they say. You see, they come and on their terms, their way of understanding the world, that there is nothing worse than for a man to die childless. And, and they put that scenario to this man who stands before them, unmarried, celibate, childless. And in a few days, they will send him like that to his death. They think death is final. There's nothing more. There's nothing beyond. They will wipe him off the face of the earth as absolutely as they know how. But they didn't have an answer for sin. They had missed that the way that God delivered his people from Egypt was through redemptive sacrifice. That in Egypt, the Passover lambs were killed. And as they were killed, they died the death deserved by the children of Israel. In Egypt, judgment fell on sin, but it was the blood of the Lamb that was shed in the place of God's people. And now, 
in a few days' time, this man who they mock would pour out his own blood. He will be the true Passover lamb. He will be the one to whom all the other sacrifices pointed. And as judgment falls on this innocent man, his people would be unshackled from the bonds of sin and death. The problem of humanity is radically deep. And it's only the cross of Christ that is sufficient to answer. And then three days later, the great final resurrection erupted ahead of time when the man Christ Jesus emerged from the tomb. See, the, the, the Sadducees said there is no resurrection. They were too easily pleased. They, they were settling for something that cannot save. What about us? What about you? Are you too easily pleased? See, if Christ rose, if the resurrection has begun, it must It must transform the way we think about politics and about taxes and about marriage and about everything. What do you say about the resurrection? About the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Now we are a few weeks away from Easter. It's a good time for us to be thinking about resurrection. It's a good time for us to be thinking about how we will prepare our own hearts as we remember especially the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. How can we do that? Uh, Well, Tim Keller has just published a book um, on how the hope of resurrection transforms how we live today. I've not read it because it only arrived yesterday, um, but it promises to be excellent. if, If you want to be preparing your heart to think about resurrection and how it connects with life, why not get a copy and read it? Tim Keller, Hope in Times of Fear. And, and yet maybe, maybe you've got some sympathy with the Sadducees. Not all the, what the Sadducees say and do, but, but maybe you just think, I'm not, I'm not sure the resurrection is real. I, I'm really not. Well, you know, a really good introduction um, is to get a copy of this book uh, called What a Comeback. Uh, we've got a few copies here this morning. If you're not here and you'd like a copy, please do get in touch. Um, just, just a way just to begin to explore, is the resurrection real? If it is, it changes everything. You know, this is a great book to give away. A really great book to give away. It's short, very thin, very accessible, explaining Jesus' resurrection. We've got some copies. Did I say that? We've got some copies. Um, why not give a copy to someone this Easter to introduce themselves to the event that changes everything? You see, if If in this life only we put our hope in the person and work of Christ, then we are most to be pitied of all people. But we don't. We put our trust in him for life, for all life, beyond the grave, bound forever in Christ to the God of the living. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, please. Would you help us to see the world through your eyes as you describe it to us in the scripture? Please, would you help us to think more deeply about the problems so that we might grasp more fully the solution you have provided for us in the Lord Jesus Christ? Lord, as we approach Easter, I pray that over these next few weeks that you would help all of us to consider and reflect on the great resurrection of the Lord Jesus and what that means for us. May we become more convinced, more challenged, 
or helped as we do. Amen.